0: Our New Testament lesson is from Paul's letter to the Colossians, beautiful language in chapter 3 from verses 12 to 17. Here now for God's word to us today. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in the one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and with gratitude in your heart sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. My son jokes that uh, my voice is typically booming and not in need of the mic all that much, uh, but I'm fighting a bit of a cold, so if I'm uh, not quite as boisterous as I usually am, I apologize, or you can give thanks either way. Um, We live at a time in which saying I'm sorry is not always a common occurrence. Social media is surely playing a role in the non-apologetic nature of our current cultural moment. Twitter and Facebook are platforms where it's more common for the participants, including many of us, to insist that we are correct and the other side is completely wrong. At a forum with young people last week, President Obama lamented the cancel culture that is taking place in our country right now, especially on social media, where purity tests and expectations of lockstep agreement on a particular social issue are frequent. One has to use the correct vocabulary at all times, avoid the wrong terms, and check a specific set of boxes on every complex social issue. Conversely, taking the wrong position or using an incorrect word can lead to harsh critique from others. And the former president lamented that this type of bickering does not lead to positive social change. He said, "...if all you're doing is casting stones, you're not going to get that far. That's easy to do. The world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws." Political polarization certainly contributes to our era of righteous indignation. As you know, we just finished a highly contested election in Virginia, and if you're like me, you received as many as ten flyers a day in the mail, not to mention hundreds of emails talking about how wrongheaded and villainous the other candidate was, and how dangerous it would be to elect that person. It's an open question how effective the politics of personal destruction is, but this type of attack contributes to the scarcity of apologies. Part of the reluctance to apologize in the political arena is that it's too often seen as a sign of weakness. To admit error, even if the facts are not on one side, is a sign that one is scared. Consequently, expressions of remorse are infrequent in American political discourse, especially in light of constant shouting on cable news and alternative facts. And as we all know, our country has a chief executive who prides himself on never apologizing to anyone about anything. Yet another reason for self righteousness and a scarcity of apologies stems from generational difference. We are presently dealing with an abundance of generational grudges. There's a great deal of conversation happening right now about tensions between baby boomers, those born between 1946 and 1964, and millennials those born between 1981 and 1996, and Generation Z, those born between 1997 and the present day. Millennials in particular are often harshly rebuked by their elders and seen as caricatures who do nothing but complain and goof off on their phones. The caricature proceeds that they are absent from church and other events because they're all out enjoying avocado toast for brunch. Brunch. The criticism then proceeds that this is the entitled generation, the narcissists, who would rather be posting selfies at Starbucks than doing real work. Millennials and Generation Z are often seen as oblivious to the fact that previous generations did not enjoy the many comforts that they take for granted. Some of you may already know the immensely popular and concise retort to such a self-righteous characterization by older generations. Okay, boomer. Accompanied by a roll of the eyes. A few days back, a young New Zealand member of parliament, Chloe Swarbrick, was giving a floor speech about the climate crisis and an older colleague started heckling her about how wrong she was and she looked at him and just said, Okay, boomer. Implicit in this response is that the patronizing attitude of the older generations overlook a great deal of the problematic baggage being left to those who will inhabit the planet a lot longer than the rest of us. I quote an op-ed this week from the Washington Post by Molly Roberts on the proper use of the phrase. Your mom tells you that your peers' phones are rotting their brains and that they should spend some time outside mowing the lawn. Okay, boomer. Your grandpa tells you that kids these days have lost all sense of civility because they yelled at Ellen DeGeneres for going to a football game with George W. Bush. Okay, Boomer. Some random grump grump in your replies on Twitter tells you Greta Thunberg should go back to school in Sweden instead of gallivanting across the 50 states spreading the green gospel. Okay, Boomer. Implicit in this eye roll, and okay, Boomer response is that it's not worth engaging. And for many of the younger generations, my kids among them, there's also a deeper, more substantive reason for the lack of interest in responding to a patronizing comment. They feel, with some pretty good justification, that their elders have done very little to combat climate change, address the soaring federal deficit, and the entitlement crisis that looms over the entire U.S. economy. So, okay, boomer. Add in my own generation. Remember us? Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1980, and our feeling that we are the resourceful latchkey kids, the forgotten generation that learned how to fend for ourselves at an early age and who do a lot of the hard work that makes our institutions tick, but we get little or no credit for it. We see stories about generational tensions flash across the screen, but we're ignored and it drives us crazy. It contributes to our own sense of righteous indignation and belief that both generations owe us an apology. I'm convinced that these generational tensions are contributing heavily to our cultural divides, our political polarization, and our inability to say, I'm sorry. It is perhaps inevitable for one generation to blame another for society's mishaps. And my own bias is hopefully coming out that the silent generation, those born between 28 and 44, baby boomers, and me and my fellow Generation Xers should have and still could do a much better job at confronting our serious challenges. We should start by apologizing a bit more to the younger generations for what ails us, listening to them. And I'm really trying to do this with my seminary students and kids and quit trying to win the argument at all costs. At the same time, I don't like the OK Boomer response that has gone viral because it implies that there is no need for dialogue. It suggests that any conversation would not be fruitful because everyone would dig in their heels. Even if the younger generations have a real point, even if prophets like Emma Gonzalez who attended Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and has been a fearless advocate for gun control If her, prophets like Greta Thunberg are a shining light on the failures of their elders, OK Boomer is a dangerous conversation closer because it suggests that there's no absolutely no point in continuing the conversation. And when I talk about I'm sorry, I haven't even gotten into individual relationships where years of unhealthy patterns can develop punctuated by harsh disagreement, misunderstandings over money, alcohol abuse, deception, and a host of other issues. Quite often the person who should be saying he or she is sorry simply refuses to do so. Scripture reminds us that we are all broken creatures in need of God's forgiveness and also in need of doling out a lot of I'm sorry's. Christianity is built on the undeniable conclusion that our brokenness should but usually does not lead us in the direction of seeking reconciliation, of looking at the log in our own eye before we notice the speck in our brother or sisters. One of my favorite stories about reconciliation is the account of Joseph and his brothers. This is one of the longest narratives in either testament. Stretching all the way from Genesis 37 to 50, some scholars even refer to it as a novella. Many of you know the story which was adapted into the Broadway musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. In the biblical account, Joseph has a series of dreams that indicate his favorable rank among Jacob's sons. Jacob also gives him a colorful coat highlighting his preferential status. Then his brothers get jealous and throw Joseph into a pit before selling him into slavery. Joseph has a few mishaps along the way, but through ingenuity he rises to prominence in Egypt. Then a famine hits and his brothers go down to Egypt for food and supplies. There is a long and drawn out process of Joseph revealing himself to his brothers. But finally he does and they reconcile with one another. The brothers realize that despite Joseph's youthful arrogance and favored status, they overreacted out of jealousy. After Jacob dies at the end of of Genesis, the brothers approach Joseph with an expression of apology and hope that he will not take revenge. They come before him and ask for forgiveness and mercy. They say they are sorry. Certainly to save their own skin, but also because they recognize the error of their ways. There is an important concept of repentance in the Bible. The relevant Hebrew verb is shuv and it means to turn or return. To repent is to turn away. To repent is to turn from one thing to another. To turn from disobeying God to obeying God. To turn from an unhealthy relationship to a healthy one. A person who apologizes or repents from an earlier behavior is in the act of turning into a new state of being. To repent is to turn. The concept of of sin is related to this act of turning. Sin is more layered than we often assume in the Bible. Sin seems to have a quasi-objective existence in the words of one scholar. In other words, sin seems to have an external reality in the sense that it can actually weigh someone down or burden them. Have you ever used or heard modern expressions like I carry a lot of emotional baggage? or that relationship is burdened by a lot of unfortunate stuff from the past. Notice the similar language in Genesis forty-two twenty-one as Joseph's brothers described their emotional state after treating their younger sibling uh, so shabbily. We are, c- clearly, we are clearly guilty for what we did to our brother when we saw his life in danger and when, we, when he begged us for mercy, but we did not listen. The sense of guilt here implies burden, a baggage that the brothers carry and have carried for many years and that has to be and can only be unburdened by repentance, by turning to a new state of being and the only way to accomplish that is through an apology. Only at the end of the story do they recognize the need for this. Helen may chuckle at this because it's one of my favorite movies, and I've used it more than once in a sermon illustration, but I checked this week, and I haven't used it at Second Presbyterian since 2014, so hopefully, if you've forgotten. <laughs> There's a movie that came out a few years ago that did not receive enough attention, made by director David Lynch, who makes a lot of weird films. It's called The Straight Story. Get it on DVD or stream it online, The Straight Story, because it's one of the best films you'll ever see. It tells the true story of one Alvin Straight. Alvin is a 73-year-old resident of Lawrence, Iowa. He's a World War II veteran and a man with failing health. He has a bad back, bad hips, and he needs two canes to get around the house. A lifelong smoker, Alvin is in the early stages of emphysema. Cataracts in both eyes have made it difficult to see and impossible for him to drive. Alvin has challenges. At the beginning of the film, Alvin and his daughter receive a call with the news that his older brother Lyle has suffered a stroke. Alvin and Lyle grew up on a farm in Minnesota, did everything together, and were best friends for many years. Wherever Lyle went, Alvin went. The problem is that Alvin and Lyle haven't seen each other in ten years and are not on speaking terms. At the beginning of the film, Alvin confesses to friends that he and his brother said some unforgivable things the last time they met and may have done permanent damage to their relationship. He explains that his broken relationship with Lyle is as old as the Bible, just like Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, And Joseph and his brothers. What really drove us apart, he tells one of his friends, is as old as human relationships. Anger, vanity, liquor. Yet Alvin decides that he wants to reconcile with his brother. More to the point, Alvin wants to apologize. The only problem is that Lyle lives in rural Wisconsin more than 300 miles away from Lawrence, Iowa. And Alvin wants to get there himself as a gesture to his brother. No bus or train, and he doesn't want anyone driving him. But he can't see well enough to drive a car. So he buys a 1965 John Deere riding lawnmower. Green, of course, and hitches it to a trailer. The mower only goes five miles an hour, so you do the math. It will take Alvin weeks to drive on back roads and state highways across the cornfields of Iowa to get to his brother, but he decides to set out and thus begins one of the most beautiful journeys ever captured on film. Along the way, Alvin meets farmers and cyclists, pleasant folks and difficult ones. His wisdom leads a young pregnant girl running away from home to reconcile with her family. He convinces twin brothers to quit fighting so much. During Alvin's journey, he shows us that true fulfillment cannot be found in money or prestige, but in relationships and seeking forgiveness. His comment on sibling relationships is the best line in the movie, I think. There's no one who knows your life more than a sibling near your age. A brother knows who you are and what you are better than anyone on earth. The tractor Alvin rides serves as his remarkable apology to Lyle. The movie closes, spoiler alert, with Lyle staring at the tractor and then looking at his brother with a tear in his eye. Then evening comes, and they can look up at the stars together just as they did when they were boys. Alvin's apology has brought peace to their relationship. My sister Elizabeth is three years older than me and lives in Los Angeles where she's an academic dean at Cal State Northridge. She came to visit last weekend to celebrate my birthday. We started reminiscing over dinner and I brought up her birthday party at the Six Flags Over Georgia theme park when I was seven years old and my sister and all of her friends, my dad and me, rode the Scream Machine roller coaster for the first time. Now I'm going to get into an okay boomer moment and say, uh, it was it, for those of you who remember, it used to be a real treat to go to an amusement park. You went maybe once a year. And I'd never ridden the stream machine before, but my sister didn't want me going to her birthday party. I was a seven-year-old interloper, and she said so for many weeks leading up to the big Six Flags event. I didn't bring this up last week at dinner, but she said, I know I was a jerk and did not want you to attend my birthday party, and I'm sorry about that. My jaw dropped. I could not believe she remembered the incident as vividly as I did and wanted to apologize more than four decades later. This has come on the heels of some apologies I have made in recent years to her for reckless and at times hurtful words I lobbed at her during our adolescent years. We often assume that words or actions uttered in the past are no longer relevant, but the Joseph story in Genesis reminds us, and our own experiences remind us, That sin can carry with it real guilt. Baggage that can weigh us down and hinder our relationships without an apology. We can never underestimate the power of an apology to transform a relationship, a family, or even the world. One of the most beautiful passages about the need for this type of behavior comes from Paul's letter to the Colossians. Where he gives a list of traits that should be goals for all followers of Jesus. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved... Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. If anyone has a complaint, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive and be thankful. Humility, in particular, is a core requirement in Paul's letters. Because Christ humbled himself on the cross, as described in the famous hymn in Philippians, we are to follow this model, however imperfectly, to clothe ourselves with humility. Humility requires us to swallow our pride and say sorry when we have wronged someone else no matter how much time has passed. The College of Business at Ohio State University conducted an experiment in which they polled and interviewed 500 people and came up with six elements to an effective apology. Number one, an expression of regret. Number two, an explanation of what went wrong. Number three, an acknowledgement of responsibility. Number four, a declaration of repentance. Number five, an offer of repair. And number six, a request for forgiveness. It's notable that of these elements, the researchers found that an explanation of what went wrong and an offer of repair were more important than a request for forgiveness. One must explain what went wrong and how one intends to correct the problem before seeking forgiveness in order for the apology to be truly sincere. It's noteworthy that a declaration of repentance is also part of the process. Just as Scripture reminds those who have committed wrong to turn from sin... This six six step process encourages moving from an old situation to a new one through mutual understanding and reconciliation. Okay, boomer cannot become the mantra of our time if we're going to transcend generational tensions. Nor might I add, can young people are tied to their phones and show no respect. There's too much at stake for us to be self-righteous and dismissive of each other, to assume that any one generation or person knows how to solve what ails us. We need more intergenerational understanding, willingness to admit wrongdoing, a world in which I'm sorry triumphs over calling someone else a snowflake. Clearly, we have a lot of work to do to accomplish such a goal. Yet our model in this is as always Jesus Christ. The passage we read from Colossians ends with a beautiful encapsulation of what it means to be a servant of the risen Lord. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. It's much easier to say we are sorry if we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and win out over any self-righteous baggage we carry. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Eternal God, help us to be instruments of your peace, to seek reconciliation with you, and with all those we know, help us to learn to say I'm sorry when the situation demands it, and to work as always for the glory of your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.